Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. We regret the episode you are about to hear has distorted sound quality. Technical issues during recording produced echoes and voices for most of the episode. Despite these sound distortions, we decided to make the episode available because of the quality of the discussion. We have found that raising the listening volume does reduce the distortion somewhat, so recommend that you try that to improve what you hear. We are sorry for the poor sound quality, but believe that you will find that the content of the discussion quite enlightening. Professors Myers and Gordino provide a fascinating analysis of the race of the Democratic nomination. Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine and those are my guests. In a little over one week from now, the long Democratic primary process begins. Between February 3rd and June 6th, primaries and caucuses will be held to choose the delegates who will pick the 2020 Democratic presidential nominee. Although the first votes in the process will not be cast until the Iowa caucuses on Monday, February 3rd, the primary contest has been underway for more than a year now. The presidential candidate field is one of the largest in history, with a total of 28 candidates entering the race for the Democratic nod. Of these, 16 have dropped out over the past several months, but this still leaves 12 active candidates in the race as the voting begins. With no single candidate commanding a majority or even a large plurality in the polls, the outcome of the contest remains uncertain. To help us understand more about the presidential selection process and sort out the shape of the Democratic field, I invited Professors Matt Bordino and Adam Myers to be on your newsfeed. As listeners may remember from their previous visits to the podcast, Dr. Guardino is the PC Political Science Department Specialist in the Media and Political Communication. And Dr. Myers studies political parties, particularly at the state level, and the dynamics of political polarization. In our interesting conversation, Adam and Matt brought different perspectives to the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. Uh, In fact, you're going to hear in the conversation that follows a real debate between the two about the viability of Bernie Sanders as a Democratic presidential nominee. So I think you're going to find this a very interesting conversation. Matt and Adam, welcome back to Beyond Your Newsfeed. I want to sort of start off this discussion of uh, the Democratic nomination contest by going through a little bit the the nomination process, sort of lay that out and talk about the uh, contest itself. Adam, you want to start off by giving us a background on how the Democrats nominate their presidents? So um, so what's going to be beginning on Monday, February 3rd, um, will be a four-month process. Right? It's going to basically last through the beginning of June. And that process is going to be composed of a set of contests in states across the country um, in which the folks who are running to be the Democratic presidential nominee are, in essence, accumulating delegates. Right? So it's officially those delegates um, who are going to be choosing the Democratic nominee in the Democratic National Convention, which will take place in Milwaukee in July. 
Uh, and essentially, uh, you know, there's about 4,750 delegates that are going to be awarded to the different candidates nationally. And candidates accumulate delegates on the basis of how well they do um, in the primaries and caucuses that take place in each of the states. Um, and, and so just for the benefit of your, uh, our listeners a little bit, um, a primary is just like any regular election, um, except that who you're voting for and the privacy of your voting booth is who you want your party's presidential nominee to be. Um, caucuses are more public gatherings um, that occur in precincts um, in which people who are registered Democrats uh, show up and publicly announce their support for a candidate, try to rally others to their side. Um, and groups of voters publicly supporting candidates eventually form. So that's what's going to be happening in Iowa, right? But a week after that, there's going to be a primary election in New Hampshire. And essentially, these caucuses and primaries that occur throughout the states are going to determine how many delegates um, in the national convention the candidates get, right? The delegates are going to be awarded proportionally um, based on, roughly speaking, the percentage of the votes that each candidate gets. Um, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's sort of an example to it. Yeah, and Adam, and most of those delegates are chosen in primaries, right? There are very few caucuses. That's, that's correct. So, um, so Iowa is very, it's unusual. Iowa's unusual. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a caucus following Iowa and Nevada and then several other states after that. But the vast bulk states uh, select their delegates via primaries. And it's certainly important to, to reinforce the, the understanding that these uh, delegates are divided proportionally. Okay, so uh, even if a candidate comes in second or third in a state, they still will, ha- will earn some delegates out of that state. That's right. So according to the Democratic Party's rules, um, a candidate has to meet a threshold of 15% of the vote, either um, statewide or within congressional districts, in order to accumulate delegates. Um, so some of the delegates within states are accumulated statewide, some of them are accumulated by congressional districts. But within either one of those, if a candidate makes 15% of the vote, he or she's going to accumulate at least some delegates. With that proportional representation system, that creates the theoretical possibility that there'll be no majority winner at the end of the process. That's correct. And so that's where, um, you know, this issue of superdelegates comes in. And I, I don't know if we want to get into that too much, but there are um, a set of delegates that are going to be in the Democratic National Convention. They're going to be, they're about 15% of the total delegates that aren't pledged to any candidate, right? These are mostly party leaders and party elites. Um, and, but these folks will not vote in the first round of voting in the Democratic National Convention. This is a new rule that the DNC instituted a few years ago. Um, and so these superdelegates will have no role in the first round of voting. But if no candidate gets a majority of the pledged delegates, right, the delegates that are awarded based on the results of the primaries or caucuses, then these superdelegates come into the mix. Okay. Well, I think later on in our conversation, we need to talk a little bit about the the possibility of the famous uh, uh, block convention, the convention that it doesn't have a, a sure winner uh, against. Right. So we can, we can talk about that later. So let's get into a little bit the shape of the race, uh, the number of candidates, uh, who seems to be leading uh, at this point, uh, or what you might say about who's ahead and who's behind at this point. Matt, you want to give your view of that at this point? Uh, sure. So uh, I think it's pretty clear at this point um, with, you know, looking at the field right now, 
nationally, there's a top tier of candidates, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and uh, Pete Buttigieg. And then uh, I'm not actually sure, sure right now exactly how many candidates in total are still in the race officially. Uh, but that's the that's the top tier. And most of the national polls would show that. And then many of the important early states in terms of primaries and caucuses, most of those same folks are clustered at or near the top. And Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders both, um, you know, at or near the top in Iowa and New Hampshire, respectively. So I guess I would add to that just a few things that, you know, the, the polls nationally, you know, don't always reflect what's going on in the individual states. Right? Uh, so, you know, nationally, um, Biden is consistently ahead, pulling in the high 20s, I think. Um, and then about five, ten points behind him is this, this, the person who's in second place. And depending on the poll, that's either Sanders or Warren. Um, usually it's Sanders. Um, but, but Matt is, is right. Sanders, Warren, and Buttigieg are kind of clustered in the middle. Um, although, interestingly enough, uh, Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, this, this late entrant into the race, he's moving up in the national polls quite quickly. And I think in, in some national polls, he's exceeded uh, Buttigieg. Um, and so that's significant and warrants paying attention to. But then if you look at the individual polls in the states, right, and so in Iowa, it's a very close contest. Biden um, is consistently a little bit ahead, but then those other candidates are, are neck and neck. And in New Hampshire, Sanders appears to be substantially ahead. And then in South Carolina, Biden is way ahead. Right? So what's going on in the states differs from what's going on nationally. Yeah, but those Iowa polls, one wonders, given the nature of the caucus, uh, how significant that lead in a poll is, since uh, whoever wins the caucus is going to be a factor is going to be affected by which candidates can bring out enthusiastic supporters on probably won't be a cold winter night in, in Iowa, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, the, um, it's very hard to pull Iowa. Um, Matt and I were talking. The pollster who appears to have the best track record is this company named Ansel who works for the uh, polls for the Des Moines Register, but I don't think that. The Boeing Register has released their poll in a while, so we don't have that good of a sense of what's happening in Iowa. Now, the last national poll that came out, I think, the day before yesterday, the CNN poll showed a surge of Bernie Sanders that he was actually leading by nationally for the first time. What do we make of that? Is there a is there a Bernie surge going on right on the cusp of the, the Iowa caucuses? I think there's actually a lot of evidence to suggest that's the case. Now, how strong that's going to ultimately be, how it may affect the results in Iowa and how sustainable it's going to be, right? Those are all open questions, but his support is strong, um, deep, committed. These are things that I think are pretty clear. And, you know, we can talk more about the last debate later, um, but I do think that uh, the last debate, in particular, the controversy between the Sanders and Elizabeth Warren campaigns, in some ways may have ended up helping Sanders and may be partially responsible for some of this recent surge. That's an interesting point, Matt. Let me follow up. Why do you think it helped Sanders? Uh, remind our listeners about exactly what happened and, and, and how that was reported, etc. So shortly before the last debate, Someone in this in the Elizabeth Warren campaign revealed or leaked to the media uh, the 
claimed that during a private conversation in 2018 between Sanders and Warren, Sanders had said that he didn't think a woman could win the presidency, which created, of course, a major controversy. It became a subject during the debate, a subject of a very, I would say, problematic, to say the least, uh, question by one of the journalist moderators there from CNN. And Sanders immediately denied that publicly and denied it again flatly uh, that he said that at the debate. And uh, in terms of the the question, so the the question by the CNN moderator assumed, right, so she asked Sanders if he had said that and he denied it flatly. And then she turned around and asked Warren a question, which assumed in the way it was phrased that, in fact, Sanders had said it, which has uh, created a lot of uh, controversy in terms of sort of journalistic practices and, and journalistic ethics there. And that really upset a lot of Sanders supporters, upset a lot of other people as well, just from the perspective of, of how the question was handled uh, by the journalist there. And, 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 I, and also, Bernie Sanders got some serious fundraising momentum out of that. I, I think his best hour for online fundraising was during that last debate, um, up to that point, at least. So I think that that could potentially have been beneficial to him. I also say from the, I, I can't speak, of course, to what was or wasn't said in this conversation between the two candidates in 2018, but I will say that from the perspective of campaign strategy, if the leak of this allegation uh, was an attempt at a kind of strategic move for the San for the war campaign to differentiate herself from Sanders, it was sort of an odd move to make and perhaps a bit clumsily executed. So I'm not sure that it's going to redound to the benefit that they may have thought that that it would have. Of course, this really speaks to the larger strategic issue. That there's been a lot of commentary about. What's really happening in this process is a is a choice that Democratic voters need to make between either a moderate uh, candidate uh, or one of the more, more progressives. And on the progressive side, you have uh, Sanders and Warren. On the more moderate side, Biden or Buttigieg or or maybe even Klobuchar. So, can you say something about that dynamic? And and are, are what we're seeing here with Sanders and Warren is sort of maybe a fight for the progressive. Mantle and Sanders may be merging as, in fact, the progressive candidate. So, so here I think it's very important to distinguish between what Democratic elites are doing and thinking of what Democratic voters, people who are going to vote in the Democratic primaries, are doing. Um, because contrary to conventional wisdom, um, it does not appear to me that ordinary voters who are likely to participate in Democratic primaries. Um, appear to be choosing candidates based on ideology. And, and there's several reasons I say that. First is that, just in general, there's a lot of political science evidence that suggests that most voters don't vote ideologically. Um, but in regards to what's going on in this specific race, um, polls that ask um, voters who their second choice would be, right, if their first choice were kind of running, um, consistently show that a lot of the voters don't necessarily pick the candidate that's ideologically closest to their preferred candidate is their second choice, right? So among Sanders supporters, um, there's actually a tie between Warren and Biden for uh, who their second choice is. Among Biden supporters, um, Sanders is ahead as being the second choice. Um, and, and there's really no clear ideological sort of um, 
it does not appear that how that how voters rank the candidates um, has much to do with their ideology, um, which is why I don't think the voters are paying all that much attention to the ideologies of the candidates per se. Some of them are, um, but many of them are not. Um, now, among elites and among what's going on among the Democratic you know, Party organization and among politicians who are Democrats and so forth, it's a completely different matter. Um, and, and we can talk about that more. I'd be happy to talk about that more. So I would, I would generally agree with what Adam said about the way that people, the way that the electorate seems to be making decisions here. Uh, and, you know, I think that partly just reflects the strange political moment that we're in, the volatility and the flux of the race. So many different factors are being weighed in terms of so-called electability, candidate-level factors in terms of the, the persona, personality, uh, experience level, traits of the candidate, as well as policy concerns. I would add a couple of complications or just additional thoughts to that. So one is that, right, elites, depending on how we define elites, right, this is more of an issue. The ideological differences are more of an issue for them. But if we define elites to include people who donate money to the campaign, at least consistently, as well as those who show up to volunteer, to organize and mobilize voters, I think these ideological differences are very important. Uh, the distinct the attempts between the candidates to distinct, distinguish themselves on these issues are important, and that could, of course, have indirect effects on things like turnout and mobilization, right? Which could affect voting results, even if the voters themselves aren't necessarily thinking closely about the ideological divisions. I would agree with that. I do think that what's very, you know, going back to this tip between Sanders and Warren that Bab was speaking about earlier, I think what's actually more interesting than that um, is the, the amount of interviews and comments that I've recently heard from Democratic politicians um, who are now openly criticizing Sanders, right, which is something many of them weren't doing um, for a good portion of this contest. And I think that is indicative of was Hillary uh, Clinton. Hillary Clinton, but not just her. Um, there have been recent interviews by several folks who served as governor of Vermont. They've um, gotten somewhat less attention, um, but I'll, but um, and then a number of other folks as well have recently sort of started to criticize Sanders more than they had in the past. And you can interpret this different ways, right? I mean, I think a lot of the Sanders folks would say this is just the establishment scared that you know Bernie Sanders. Um, might actually do this thing. Um, but you can also interpret this as just the result of a lot of pent-up frustration on the part of a lot of folks in the Democratic Party who think that Sanders and his allies played some sort of role in not costing Hillary Clinton the, the election in 2016 and at least weakening her. Um, and what is consistent across a lot of these interviews that I've noticed is just the sense that Sanders and his supporters, because they, they view their motivations as pure, um, as opposed to the other candidates. Um, they're willing to resort to dirty tactics, which in the long run undermine um, the Democratic Party's prospects. And, and you can judge that as you will. But this is but this is an interesting trend that I've noticed in the past week or two. That I, well, certainly that though, would sort of rile up Sanders' supporters. Right? They, they're going to see this as, once again, as in 2016, uh, the establishment undercutting their boy and uh, he's not going to get the nomination because of the, some kind of elite conspiracy. Uh, that just is going to motivate them some more, right? Matt, what do you think? I would agree with that. I do need to kind of 
walk back to a little bit what, what Adam was talking about. I think we need to be very, very careful in talking about the dirty tactics by by any of the campaigns, frankly, particularly in the context of you know, we have to think about what actually happened in 2016 and what evidence we have for what happened. Because Sanders, of course, put up a strong primary fight, we all know that, ended up endorsing and going out and giving speeches and working by all accounts of the evidence that we have pretty hard to help her get elected. And the evidence that he was active in undermining her general election campaign or was the principal reason why she lost to Donald Trump in electoral college, I think is weak at best. And there, there are a lot of allegations and some credible evidence to suggest that it was the so-called establishment Democrats in 2016 that engaged in so-called dirty tactics. So I do agree uh, with Adam in terms of just the empirical observation that more and more Democratic Party elites are coming out and open criticizing Sanders now in the wake of this. And I don't think we have to go toward anything like conspiracy theory to just to understand that whatever people's opinions are about the candidates and ideology, what Sanders in his uh, in, in the movement behind him represents is doesn't sit well with much of the main power holders in the Democratic Party for several decades. And, you know, the fact that he might appear weak because of what happened with the Sanders and Warren controversy and the comments might have encouraged more of these folks to speak up against him. And I also have to say one more thing about Clinton, which is just that she, I think she's since softened her comments, but in an interview recently about the new um, the new uh, series that's coming out about her, suggested that she would not commit to supporting Sanders if he became the Democratic nominee, which is, I think, interesting, given what happened in 2016, number one, and number two, that really is going to, and it has already fired up a lot of Sanders supporters. They see that as hypocritical, to say the least. Of course, the issue with all this back and forth is a really desire across the Democratic Party to defeat Donald Trump next November, right? So a lot of the concern is whether or not Sanders or some other candidate would be a good candidate in the general election. I mean, would you be willing at this point to start making some speculation as to among these top tier candidates, who would be the likely best candidate to take on Trump in November? Any thoughts about that? This is real speculation. Right? It's, the, the evidence that we do have now is very thin. Uh, we won't know really in a really serious way, probably until next fall. But. So... I really hesitate to speculate on this, but what I, I would say is that as a general matter, it doesn't matter all much who the Democrats nominate. And I say that because I think the evidence suggests that uh, whoever the Democrats nominate is going to start off with a floor of about 43, 44% support among um, likely voters in the general election. So. Essentially, whoever the nominee is, the, the, the Democratic voters, the Democratic base is going to rally behind that candidate. That's my sense now. But the, the, the caveat to that is that we, there's very good reason to believe that the general election is going to be very close and it's going to come down to a handful of states um, where the results are going to be exceedingly close, like 2016. Um, and in those states, small changes among a small number of voters could make a difference, right? That's what happened in 2016. I mean, if you look, 
at, at the national voting patterns in 2016. Um, they look almost identical to the national voting patterns in 2012. The country is, is that polarized and that, to be quite frank, ossified in its, its voting behavior at this point. Um, but the difference between the outcome in 2016 and 2012 was largely a result of a shift among a small number of voters in a small number of states. And so the real question is, which can't, you know, how, the, you know, the eventual Democratic nominee is going to affect those kinds of small shifts. And that's something that's very, very hard uh, to predict. I would agree with that general analysis and just and kind of add to that, that we need to be, it's not as if the national polls don't matter, but I think we need to be very focused on these swing states and in thinking about which candidates based on policy positions, based on who they are and based on other factors, what coalitions are behind them might be most effective in, in, in shaping those those shifts that Adam talks about. So I think all the, the front runners have different strengths and weaknesses on that front. I think that Biden, for example, has strengths in terms of his, his appeal to so-called moderate voters uh, in those states who may be able to, largely because they're extremely upset with President Trump and the Trump administration, uh, see him as a return to normalcy and as someone who's moderate policy positions they can live with. Uh, on the so other hand, if I can interrupt, Matt, so, so in a state like Pennsylvania, that might be uh, suburban women voters who mm-hmm. shifted to the Democrats in 2018, or are those the kind of people you're thinking about, or are you thinking about the typical high school educated white working class male? I would say. Primarily the first category that you mentioned, given the political circumstances now, uh, because of, like you mentioned, the 2018 congressional elections and, and trying to reproduce some of those gains, right, from that election in the swing states. He also, Biden, has liabilities that I think are pretty clear. And, you know, but that that's clearly a strength for him. Um, when we think about Sanders, I think he also has strengths that could play well in the swing states, different ones that have more to do with the ability to turn out less likely voters, infrequent voters, particularly younger folks, and those lower on the socioeconomic scale. So actually, with regard to Sanders, he's actually the one big question mark um, that I have in regards to what, you know, how you know, a Democrat would perform um, versus Trump. I think with pretty much everyone else, maybe not everyone else, but almost everyone else, um, you know, what I said earlier holds, you know, the Democratic nominee would start off with a floor in the low to mid-40s. With Sanders, I just don't know. Um, I don't know because he is so outside the realm of what a typical Democratic nominee over the past 30, 40 years has looked like. Um, and it's very hard to know um, the extent to which he would hold the Democratic coalition together. It's very important to bear in mind that a big part of the reason that, for why Democrats took control of the House in 2018 is because of major Democratic gains in upscale suburban areas. I don't know if those upscale suburban voters um, would rally behind Sanders. I actually think they wouldn't. And we also just don't know. I mean, it's possible that what that said is true, that, that Sanders would, would Gen up enthusiasm and, and lead to higher turnout among low income voters um, and, young, and young people and so forth. But we don't know. Right? Um, we have no evidence which to base that at this point, at least not general election evidence. And so, I, you know, it's a real question to me, um, you know, what, 
happens in terms of party alignments nationally if Sanders is the nominee. I agree that there's more uncertainty there for some of the reasons that, that Adam suggested in terms of who Sanders is and how different he is. But, uh, you know, just a counterpoint on that, I do think that Sanders, when you do look at national polls and national sort of favorability ratings, stacks up pretty well against pretty much any national level politician of either party. Secondly, to the extent that the goal of the overriding goal of the Democratic electorate is to defeat Trump, then it's sort of interesting that I guess I question how many of these so-called swing voters, for example, suburban women and others who are adamantly against Trump would actually be so turned off by Sanders campaign or his politicians that they would presumably stay home or vote for some other candidate. Right. It's hard for me to wrap my, my, my mind around that right now, given how much anti-Trump fervor there is. Yeah, actually, the, the 2018 election gives some indication for that. I mean, that, that election ended up sort of a referendum on Trump, and voters voted uh, for the Democrats, seemed highly motivated to sort of send the message they didn't like Trump. And could but we imagine that happening you know, again in 2020. But the 2020 uh, election will not be a referendum on Trump, strictly speaking, if Sanders is the nominee. I think that's pretty clear. So it's going to be a choice election. Uh, you know, I don't see any way around it. Voters who otherwise vote Democratic um, simply to uh, send an anti-Trump message or simply to get Trump out of there, I guess, um, would would have to at least, at the minimum, think more carefully about their choice. Um, if Sanders were the nominee. And I simply do not know how that would shake out. But I guess I just want to push back on that a little bit more, too. And again, I, don't, I do think there's a lot of uncertainty there. But if voters, and frankly, we know particularly so-called swing voters and more independent voters, don't pay a lot of attention to ideology and substantive policy positions, then what? how important are Sanders, say, left-wing economic views going to be in how how much will that scare off right these voters who are adamantly anti-Trump? I mean, I, I think that's an important question to ask. Well, there is one segment of the American electorate that clearly is anti-Sanders and anti-Warren, and that's the Wall Street class. The the, the Wall Street billionaires uh, clearly are not happy with the prospect of either a Sanders or a Warren presidency. Uh, should we factor that in? I mean, could it be that uh, if someone like Biden is the Democratic nominee, uh, the really wealthy uh, donor class in America will be perhaps less enthusiastic about supporting Trump? Uh, or, uh, or or does it matter? Are they going to back Trump nevertheless? After all, if you look at the stock market, Trump seems to have been done pretty well by Wall Street. I don't know. Um, it's it's a good question. Um, it seems to me that the Wall Street class, you know, there was there was a point in time over the summer where there was a lot of evidence, a lot of reporting that was suggesting that the Wall Street class had sort of reconciled themselves to the possibility of a Warren presidency. Um, and, you know, and what they really wanted to avoid was a Sanders nomination. Um, and so I don't know if. You know, the, the Wall Street class looks at Sanders and Warren in exactly the same way. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, focusing on Sanders, I think it stands to reason that if he were the nominee, um, there, 
would be, you know, that would that would mobilize a lot of, you know, not just uh, you know the Wall Street class, but a lot of you know upper income, you know, affluent people who would ordinarily, um, who would under other circumstances support the Democratic nominee, um, that would mobilize them against the Democrats, or at least force many of them to sit on the sidelines. Um, and and the impact of that is again, it's, it's just uh, it's it's very hard to know at this point. To, to me, there's no doubt that Sanders, that, that Warren to a large extent, but especially Sanders, uh, are anathema to the so-called Wall Street class and that they w- are and will do what they feel they can do in order to avoid, particularly a Sanders presidency, but even to an extent, a Warren presidency. Uh, however, uh, and that would be uh, an obstacle right, to either of them, especially Sanders in the general election. However, I think Sanders especially has something to compensate for that potentially, which is what I mentioned before, that a really committed and well, uh, well elaborated sort of grassroots organizing network and a type of appeal that can potentially be more effective in turning out infrequent voters and, and people who don't pay all that much attention to the kinds of attack ads that you might see, say funded by interest groups and, and other kind of Wall Street sectors. Um, so I, I, I think that that could play a role as well. And whoever the Democratic nominee is, that nominee will have sufficient funds to counteract, I would think, any kind of uh, funding. Uh, um, even if, even if we, we know that differentials in spending in the general election are not, is not a major factor. I think it's important, again, um, with regards to standards, there's just an awful lot that we don't know in, in regards to, you know, how effective um, his grassroots organization would be in a general election. And looking at the polling results right now, in terms of the Democratic primary contest, one thing that strikes me, which is, I think, um, quite important, is that, um, you know, there is not a clear class divide. Um, in regards to um, uh, support for the various uh, Democratic presidential candidates. Um, it's simply not reflected in the polls. Um, to the extent there is a class divide is favoring Biden, right? Low-income and working-class likely Democratic voters are significantly more likely to indicate that they're going to vote for Biden, right? And Sanders does not enjoy any outside support among that group. He does enjoy significant outside support among younger voters. That is true. Um no, and, and I think, you know, sort of younger college-educated voters, that to me is his base, not the working class, at least as far as the Democratic electorate is concerned. How that plays out in the general election, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, would he boost turnout among young voters, you know, who are not just uh, Democratic primary voters? Uh, you know, we shall, we guess, we might see. Uh, yeah, I think... I, Again, I think so, so far I, I, I agree on the face of what Adam said, but at the same time, yeah, the primary electorate and the caucus electorate for the Democrats is quite different than the, what's going to be the general election electorate, as well as the potential general election electorate that could be those adding folks who don't turn out frequently for elections, right? Who maybe turn out, and not just younger folks, because although there isn't, I agree with that, and that we don't see data showing a really clear class divide in the Democratic, among the Democratic candidates in the primary, that could, uh, those factors could play a 
a significantly greater role in the general election. Again, particularly in some of these swing states that are going to be awfully close. Because this, this issue might get over for Biden as well, right? That I don't think Biden is going, to have, is going to create a lot of enthusiasm among younger voters. Uh, so could that be a real drive, drawback if, if he were to nominate? Potentially, but, but if you just think about the math of the Electoral College, right, and what a Democrat would have to do to win the Electoral College, the main thing a Democrat would have to do um, is boost African-American turnout um, mm-hmm. in places like Milwaukee, Detroit, and Philadelphia. Right. That, that, that turnout was lower for Clinton than it had been for Obama. Right. Particularly in all those cities. Particularly in, in Milwaukee and Wisconsin generally, but also in, in Detroit and Michigan. Biden appears to be the candidate with the strongest base of support among African American voters. Um, and, and so I think that's telling for the Democrats as well. Right. Well, of course, all the speculation this far in advance of the general election. Right. It's all really, right. we really have no idea. I just want to add something really quickly to that. Um, I know that, that it, I agree, right, Biden, clearly the data, the data show has the biggest base of support among African-American voters. On the other hand, Sanders has a great deal of support among younger voters of color, in particular, people younger than 30, even younger than 40, even younger than 50, which is, of course, not young, necessarily. And there are many ways that the Democrat could win the election, the general election, right? Boosting African-American turnout in these key states is one way to do it. One thing that would, of course, would, could change from the last election, but also just boosting overall Democratic turnout among a broader coalition of people, including African-Americans, but others, including younger, I should say, uh, Democratic voters could be important, too. Well, let me bring up a name we haven't mentioned up to now, though I think maybe we did make a little mention. Michael Bloomberg. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, who announced that he's going to be a candidate, but he hasn't entered any of the early primaries, and he is simply going to uh, try to uh, become a a, a factor here in the Super Tuesday uh, contest, which is March 3rd, right? Uh, what do you think about the Bloomberg candidacy? This is a little unusual. Uh, here's someone who's got a lot of money to promote his candidacy. Uh, might he be a sort of factor that is going to affect the race? I would say in the primaries, he's not going to be much of a factor at all. And, you know, I think that I, I do think his candidacy in part reflects the, the fear of Warren, but especially a Sanders, right? Winning the nomination that we talked about before. But, you know, if you Bloomberg has said that he would support even Sanders or Sure, he might support them, but sure, I I venture to say he wouldn't prefer them. And, and, uh, you know, his kind of, uh, uh, who he represents wouldn't prefer prefer them. If he were to run in the general, if he were to lose the Democratic primary and run in the general election, you know, as an independent, then that, I think, throws the entire race into some chaos. So, yeah, but who knows if you would do that. Adam, what do you think? So, uh, here I, I disagree slightly. Um, first of all, I think Bloomberg's effect in the primaries is a huge question mark, and we won't really know what that effect is until Super Tuesday for the simple fact that 
Bloomberg has basically decided not to contest, or at least not to focus a lot of his efforts on the early states, those being Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. Um, and what's interesting um, about this year's primary calendar is that, you know, in previous years, um, voting started in early January. This year starts in early February, um, which means there's basically a month until Super Tuesday, right? And there's and Super Tuesday is a day in which there's a huge number of delegates at stake um, in states like California and Texas, right? Um, and those kinds of large states are states in which Bloomberg's strategy, which is to focus on what's called wholesale politics, right? Media buys and mass advertising and so forth, as opposed to retail politics, um, meaning going out and meeting voters and shaking their hands and talking to voters one-on-one, town halls and so forth. Um, you know, wholesale politics is, is much more effective in a state like California or a state like Texas. Um, and so Bloomberg uh, is really, you know, running his primary campaign based on a kind of new model, a model that hasn't been tried before. And he's only able to do that because he has so much money. Um, and who knows, you know, in this day and age, right, in which, um, you know, so many Americans get their news from national media, um, and um, where it seems like, uh, you know, retail politics isn't as important as it used to be, um, Bloomberg's strategy might well be effective. And the fact of the matter is he is rising in the national polls. Um, he's rising in the national polls substantially. Now, is he going to get to where uh, Biden or Sanders or Warren are at um, within a few weeks? Uh, kind of doubtful, but... Um, I don't know where he gets by Super Tuesday in a state like California or a state like Texas. Who knows what he would do in the general election if he, assuming he didn't win the nomination, but it sounds like his main goal is to take Trump out, um, which is, and so... And he knows if he ran, he would probably simply just help Trump. Right, so for that reason, I don't see him running as an independent. I agree that it's within the realm of possibility that Bloomberg could outperform my expectations and maybe potentially make something of the primaries. But for the reasons that Adam suggested, on the other hand, you know, these early states that he's sitting out, are, of course, really important to the overall process. You can't see the states in isolation from each other. Depending on what happens in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, a lot of voters will change their minds, right, in the wake of that. And we might think voters who might support him in a place like California say, right, but they might turn around and not support him, right, in the wake of what happens in those early states, depending on right, where the race seems to be going. Right, and it seems that his candidacy, if it's aimed at trying to forestall a Sanders or Warren nomination, uh, might uh, work in the opposite direction. That is, you might undercut whoever might emerge as as the moderate alternative. You might, in fact, draw votes away from, say, Biden in California. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that and that would sort of do the opposite of what he wants to. That's certainly possible. Um, I mean, the bottom line, though, is that this is so unusual, we have no idea how it's going to work out. And I, I agree with you, Adam. We're going to have to wait for Super Tuesday and, and the next morning have some sense of what effect Bloomberg uh, Bloomberg has had. Um, one thing I want to bring up, um, and it's, I guess it's kind of a, a pet concern of mine. Um, I, I'm somebody who thinks about uh, uh, politics as a 
as a kind of vocation that uh, should be uh, admired, uh, that people who uh, enter into a political career and devote themselves to politics have the skills and knowledge that should be of value uh, to the republic. Uh, but one of the things that uh, has I've noticed about this primary contest is that many of the politicians who have the kind of experience in their careers that you might think would make them very prominent potential Democratic presidential nominees uh, have certainly been very quickly sidelined. And I'm thinking about people like uh, Cory Booker, or Michael Bennett, uh, Bullock from Montana, the governor of Montana. Uh, these are people who have substantial political experience, and they certainly were not able to gain any kind of traction. Uh, what do we, we make of that? Is that something we should be concerned about uh, in sort of broader terms about the health of our democracy, that people like that seem to be shunted out of the way by people who have more perhaps national celebrity. The answer from my perspective is absolutely yes. And I would simply say this is something that's been a long time coming. We've been devaluing the importance of political experience um, for the U.S. presidency for a long time now. I mean, it's important to bear in mind that, for example, I think this started really in 2000, you know, George W. Bush um, was the, became the presumptive Republican nominee fairly early on, in spite of the fact that the entirety of his political experience um, was in being governor of a state with a weak governorship for exactly one term, right? Um, eight years later, uh, Obama becomes the Democratic presidential nominee, even though he started running for president um, after only two years in the United States Senate. Right. So I view and then, of course, Trump, you know, becomes their Republican presidential nominee, with no political experience whatsoever. So I see this as a result of a long running trend um, in which experience has been devalued in the political process. And I think this has to do with a lot of things. It has to do with, you know, the growing lack of trust of Americans in the political system um, and um, you know, the growing cynicism concerning the quote unquote establishment that's purported to rule the country from Washington. Um, and so on and so forth. So it's not an easy problem to solve, um, but it's 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 not something that started with Trump. Um, but it's obviously that something something that kind of took on new meaning with Trump. Now that somebody was elected president with no political experience, it's it's pretty clear that no political experience counts for not very much at all. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I agree with Adam completely that it's a, it's a long-running trend. I would even, you know, I think George W. Bush was the first sort of major person on the, on the national level to kind of, to, to be an example of that, but its roots go back further than that. And I do find it, as you both do, very, very troubling for all those same reasons. On the other hand, the, the lack of faith in so-called establishment political system, I would argue that much of it is perfectly reasonable, given the way that the so-called political and economic establishment has performed and uh, over the last several decades. And so, you know, experience is great and certainly no more so than at this moment with the current administration, but not it, it's not the only important factor. And for the candidates you mentioned, as much as they've shown themselves to be competent, qualified politicians and, and people who could govern well, uh, they lack national name recognition, and more importantly for me, um, in terms of the way I see things, 
political moment now is exactly one for sort of older candidates, however we want to define that, older ideas and, you know, so-called boring candidates who are competent and who have experience but can't necessarily excite passion are not necessarily going to be the candidates, especially in the Democratic electorate, large parts of the Democratic electorate. Um, they're, they're not going to resonate with those folks. Can we talk a little bit about the debates? Certainly in the contest up to now, the, the major events in terms of sorting out the field have been these debates. Um, had, I don't even, can't remember the number. There's just a large number of them since. And the first ones were back last summer, right? So over a period of several months, they've been in these debates where the candidates are exposed. And that certainly has been the, the mechanism by which uh, the field has sorted itself out up to this point before the votes were cast, and they seem to have made a difference. We've had, uh, like I said, 16 candidates have to drop out. Uh, we're back down to a field of 12, and that's been sorted into these sort of tiers that we talked about. Uh, what do you think about the debates? And we're going to have more debates uh, before each of the primaries. Uh, Matt, maybe you should, uh, as a sort of our political communication specialist, uh, say something about the debates as a way of choosing uh, presidential nominees and and how have they functioned? Well, I would agree that they do seem to have some impact in terms of winnowing down the field, as you suggested. And, you know, when the field is large as it's been and it continues to be, I mean, that's an important function. The extent to which, however, people, primary voters in particular, are learning about the candidates and, and are provided a form for really differentiating the qualifications and the policy stands of the candidates, given the way these debates have gone, I really kind of question that. There are just so many candidates on the stage at the same time, even in the most recent debates. And I don't, I, I, I find that some of the formats have been problematic for that. And so the, you know, particularly the last one was sort of aggravating in, the, in how quickly candidates had to respond, how little time they had, and how the moderators seemed almost more interested in making sure that time limits were observed and in fact cutting off candidates before they even finished with the small amount of time they had then in uh you know moderating the debate in terms of the substance of the questions and the back and forth so i think it's difficult frankly i found some of them almost unwatchable <laughs> so you know well i am not sure i agree with the premise of your question i'm not sure the debates have had that much of an impact um, overall um well, the one exception, I think that they did help Elizabeth Warren quite a bit early on um, because she clearly out almost all the other candidates in those early debates. And that kind of set the table for her to kind of, for that established her as the most knowledgeable, uh, most policy-oriented candidate. Um, and I think that that clearly led to her rise in the polls in the late summer Um early fall, but look what's happened. You know, um, since then, her numbers have dropped, and I don't think the debates have much to do with that. Um, and, and with that exception, I, I can't think of a candidate whose poll numbers have fluctuated substantially and, and durably, um, or have, have changed durably as a result of the debates. I mean, Kamala Harris had a breakout moment in one of the early debates when she challenged Biden over something I can't remember. Um, but you know that could how important it was, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it was, <laughs> whatever it was, it's clearly not important now because she's not in the race anymore. 
So, and then but the big question, again, Bloomberg, right? Bloomberg is not participating in the debates. Um, and so, you know, if he, if his candidacy really takes off, then we'll, that, that's how we will know that the debates don't really matter that much. Right. Uh, I, I found the debates very frustrating myself. That's part of the reason I asked the question. And, and one of the things that frustrated me about them was that so much time was taken up in the candidates debating these small distinctions about policies that uh, in the, in the you know, long run are going to be completely irrelevant. I mean, the big debate over Medicaid for all, for example. I mean, that's a very important policy issue. But the fact is, whoever the Democratic nominee is, that nominee is going to want to expand uh, insurance coverage somehow. And, and how that expansion occurs is going to be, a, 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 be affected by who controls the Congress and political events that occur after the election happens. And, and so these small distinctions seemed sort of completely irrelevant. And I, I would think that voters would want to think more about uh, the qualities of the people running and whether or not they were going to be good spokespeople for the values that uh, a Democratic candidate would promote in a general election. And these debates don't seem to do that at all. They don't even provide an opportunity to provide much insight into the, the personalities or the, the, uh, the values of these candidates. Uh, so why don't you just get rid of it? <laughs> yeah, that's a bad question. Okay. Well, I think we've come to the end of our discussion here. We didn't touch on impeachment, which is uh, the Senate trials going on as we speak. Uh, well, I guess we're going to have to schedule a, uh, another podcast at some point uh, on the impeachment process, and maybe as yeah. that plays out more. Uh, but anyway, uh, Matt, Adam, thanks very much for uh, your insights into the Democratic primary. Uh, I'm sure we'll call you back in the, maybe after the Super Tuesday primary uh, to talk about uh, what happened to Michael Bloomberg. Okay, thanks so much. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. So we're very thankful to uh, Matt Cordino and Adam Myers for their interesting insights in the presidential nomination process. Uh, certainly, uh, I think it helped me understand a little more about what's going to be happening uh, in the next few weeks. And we'll bring them back as the primary process uh, plays out for more of their insights. And thanks again to Beyond the News Feed's production assistant, Reagan Wynn, Providence College Class of 2020. And we continue to be grateful to Joe Carr, Vice President for Marketing Communications, and his staff for their support. Most of all, many thanks to our listeners. Please tell four friends to subscribe to Beyond Your News Feed wherever they get their podcasts. <laughs>